If you're not familiar with myself, I'm Travis Sharp, the director of Unsheltered International, which is one of our mission outreach ministries that's based out of Temple. And um, I'm sure I'm glad to get to serve the Lord in that uh, capacity because it's, it's just a joy and an honor to be from here and go out and represent uh, the Lord, but also represent our church. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to read John chapter 13, starting in verse number 1. Let's see, let me get to it. John 13, starting in verse number 1. Now this person's probably going to kill me tomorrow. But my friend Chris is here, and uh, uh, Chris and Kayla are here, and uh, I've been uh, working a little bit just for some side work uh, with a painting uh, crew. I know that's hard to believe, but and I do get more on me than on the wall. They can testify to that, but Chris is the, uh, the supervisor or the, uh, what do you call it? The foreman, yeah, he tells us what to do. So, uh, but anyway, I'm glad to have them join us tonight, and it's uh, it's a real privilege. I've been been knowing him for about a year, and we've become buddies. And I'm glad, Chris, that you're here. Thanks for coming. All right, John chapter 13. We'll start reading in verse number one. The scripture says, "Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come." that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he was come from God and went to God. He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter. And Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. In other words, Peter, you don't get it now, but there's going to come a time, don't worry, there's coming a time when you'll realize what I've done. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. I like this. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, 
Know ye what I have done unto you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, this is key, if ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for such a great uh, congregation on such a dreary night. We pray for your blessings on the message tonight. We also pray that you'd help Pastor Malcolm whenever it is that he's going to be teaching and helping and sharing what God has uh, done through him and through Temple. Now, Lord, I pray as we turn our attention to right now, to the moment before us and the passage before us, please, Lord, guide my mind, my heart, and my mouth. Don't let me say anything I shouldn't. Please, Lord, don't let me miss or forget or leave out anything I should say. I pray you'd be with my mind and memory and bring to my uh, remembrance what I've studied and learned. And God, I pray you'd fill me with your spirit and anoint the ears and the hearts and minds of everyone listening. We love you. Thank you for church tonight. In Jesus' name, amen Amen. and amen. Well, you can be seated. I don't know about you, but I'm... I'm just happy to be here. I'm glad that we don't have to uh, only watch online. I'm glad we can congregate and fellowship and be together one with another. And I need midweek church. Amen? Amen. I need church on Sunday and I need it on Wednesday. And uh, it's not because I don't read my Bible uh, throughout the week. It's not because I don't fellowship with God throughout the week. The main reason is I don't get to fellowship and see all y'all throughout the week. And, and, and every, uh, every smile helps. Every, I was going to say handshake, but I guess fist bump, that might even be illegal still. Every fist bump helps. Every, uh, every time I see somebody in the parking lot and they call my name, that helps. And that's what church is all about It's fellowship and encouraging one another in the Lord. So I'm glad that you're here tonight and I'm happy to be here myself. When I was in Bible college, a a very prominent and great pastor came to preach. Uh, He was either preaching in our chapel or maybe he was teaching a class. I can't remember exactly, but, but I remember that he taught about humility and serving the Lord. And, and by the way, the message tonight is, is called Happiness in Humble Service. Happiness in Humble Service. And that was basically what this guest pastor was talking to us Bible college students about. And I don't know, maybe he was preaching from this chapter, or maybe he was preaching from Philippians chapter 2, where it talks about uh, uh, serving others. I can't remember the passage. But what I do remember is the story that he told us 
about being a servant. He said that at his church, which was in, I think, Savannah, Georgia, he said that a, 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 this family that was not a, a, a church-going family at all, not members of his congregation, and uh, not even really Christians, uh, he said, but they called the church office and someone in their um, family had died and they had the funeral all taken care of, but they needed a place to kind of gather after the funeral so the family could be together and eat and, uh, and do all the things we do right after a funeral. And so the, the, you know, the secretary asked the pastor, and the pastor said, Sure, tell them they can use the fellowship hall. So the day come, and, and it was mid-afternoon, and, and the pastor was around, and he decided that he would go to the fellowship hall, and he would uh, just serve this family. So he went out there, and he didn't know any of them, and they did not know him. They had no clue he was the pastor of this big, nice, fancy church. And so he thought within himself that he would just get a a dish rag and drape it over his arm. And he would get a pitcher of tea and he would just go around and be nice to people and refill their tea. And he said that he was really enjoying just serving this family in their time of grief. Until that is... He went to one particular table and he just began to fill up their tea and a lady or gentleman, whoever it was, looked at him and said, I'm sorry, is that sweet or unsweet? And he said, well, it's, uh, it's sweet tea. And she said, oh, well, if you don't mind, take these back and bring us unsweet. And she went right back to her conversation at the table. And the pastor was telling us Bible college students that as soon as she said that, his face turned red, his blood began to boil, and the first thought he had was, don't she know that I'm the pastor here? And the next thought that came into his mind was the Lord asking him, how you like this being a servant business? And he told us that night in this message, he said that God taught him that day that you can know if you have a servant's heart by the way you react when you're treated like a servant. And he said it was one of the biggest lessons in his Christian life. And we were like, what'd you do? And he said he, he went and got the unsweet tea and he, against his will, served them. This is the beginning of, the, of what uh, theologians, I guess, or Bible scholars call the upper room discourse. John 13 is the beginning of that. A discourse is, is simply a, a, a series of teachings or a big lesson Jesus gave uh, probably three main discourses in his earthly ministry. One of them uh, we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's in uh, the main body of that is in Matthew chapter 5. And that's where we have the Beatitudes and, and all of that. Then he gave what we call the Olivet Discourse, uh, discourse 
I think that's like Matthew 24, 25, 26. He talks about end times. He talks about the millennial reign of Christ and, and, and many other things. And then John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 is the longest discourse or the longest continual teaching of Christ. And they call it the upper room discourse because as Jesus was teaching this, they were in the upper room making ready for the Passover. And this is just days before or maybe a a very few days before His eventual crucifixion. So what I want to do is take verses 1 through 17 and just kind of break them down a little bit and grab some nuggets of truth as we go through. I want to tell you basically uh, uh, three things. Let me just give number one first. I want to look at what Jesus knew. You can write that. I think that first one, the first blank is new, K-N-E-W. What Jesus knew. We know, of course, that Jesus, when He was uh, here on the earth, He was omnipotent. That means all-powerful. He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And and so Jesus was omnipotent, all-powerful. Jesus was also omnipresent, meaning He's everywhere at the same time. And did you know Satan is not uh, uh, all-powerful and he's not omnipresent? He can't be at my house and your house at the same time, thank God. But Jesus was omnipresent. He's everywhere. And Jesus was also omniscient. And that's the, 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 the theological term for all-knowing. So, We know that Jesus knew and knows everything. Why? Because He is God. However, in these verses, the writer, John, points out some specific things that Jesus knew about this time and what was going on. And that's what I want to share with you in point number one about what Jesus knew. Notice, first of all, He knew that His hour had finally come. His hour had finally come. In John, uh, in the Gospel of John, it talks more about Christ's hour than in any of the other gospel accounts that there is. For example, in chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus said, Mine hour is not yet come. That's at the wedding of Cana when his mother said, Hey, uh, uh, go tell Jesus that you have no wine. And he said, Woman, what, what have I have to do with you? Mine hour is not yet come. And then in chapter 7 and verse 30, it says his hour was not yet come. In chapter 8 and verse 20, it says His hour was not yet come. In chapter 12 and 23, it says the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And right here in John 13, the first thing it tells us that Jesus knew 
is that his hour was come. What is this hour that the Bible speaks about? Well, it was the time of his death. When he says, mine hour is not yet come, what he basically meant was, it's not yet time for me to suffer, be crucified, die, be buried, resurrected, and ascend back to the Father. And so we know that Jesus, as he had his earthly ministry for three and a half years... He did many things in sequential order. And it all built up to the hour or the time of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that Jesus knew in this chapter is that His hour was come. It's interesting to me because from the human point of view, This only could represent suffering. But from the divine point of view, it represented glory. Great glory. Why is that? Because Jesus knew exactly what would be accomplished through His death on the cross, burial, and resurrection. The disciples didn't get it yet. Their understanding was still darkened, as the Scripture says. They were dull of hearing. And they were trying to get Jesus up until the very end to to set up His earthly kingdom right then and right there. And Jesus knew, and we know from reading the the Gospels and, and the whole of the Bible, that that would happen later on, At His return. Not then. At this point, Jesus must die. Why is that? Because the world needed a sacrifice. And Jesus was the only qualified one to be the sin bearer for the sins of the entire world. And that's exactly what it means when it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why does believing in Christ make such a difference? Because the hour finally came when Jesus would die, pay for the sins of all mankind, and ascend back to the Father. And so... The first thing Jesus knew is that His hour had finally come. You see, here's the first little nugget we can glean from that. From our point of view, you may see the trials of your life only as suffering or bad or horrible. But if if we are walking in the will of God, God sees it as glory. Why is that? Why can our suffering be seen by God as glory? Because when a child of God suffers and still 
praises the Lord. It gives glory unto God in the, in the ears of heaven and as a witness to everybody that sees and hears. Oh my goodness, Satan thought he won when Christ was beaten. Satan thought he won when Christ was, was, was imprisoned. Satan thought he won when they nailed him to the tree. Satan thought he had won when he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And Satan certainly thought he had won the victory over death when they sealed the tomb and set a watch and made it as sure as they could. But my, 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 he didn't know that three days later he'd come up out of the grave victorious over death and hell. And my friend, Jesus turned the greatest suffering into the greatest glory. And I'm here to tell you today, he's still changing suffering into glory today. That tragedy that you've endured might be turned to glory as you trust Him. That loss that you've endured might be turned to glory as you trust Him. That disappointment, that heartache, that difficulty, God has a way, like Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Amen. So Jesus knew that His hour had finally come. But he also knew, and this is so important, as they were in this upper room, as they were eating this Passover feast supper, Jesus knew that Judas, one of the twelve disciples, would betray him. Now check this out. This just got me. In a little while, Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet. And there's no doubt that Jesus did wash all the disciples' feet, even Peter's. That means he washed Judas' feet along with Peter and John and James and the rest of them. He knew about the deal that Judas had already made to betray him. He knew about the kiss that was coming in the garden. He knew about the 30 pieces of silver. He knew that Judas would regret it so bad, he'd go out and hang himself and earn himself, as the Bible calls it, his own place in hell. He knew all of that. And he still washed his feet. You know, it's a funny thing. Most of us, the more we know, the less we think we should serve. The more education we get, the more disqualified we feel for the small things. The more degrees we have in front of or behind our name, the more important we feel. (laughs) Jesus knew. And Jesus still served. Let me show you something else Jesus knew. 
in verse 3, he knew that the Father had given him all things. All things. The scripture says in verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. Well, let's break that down. What does, what does all things mean? Does it leave anything out? <laughs> Sometimes we don't even need a dictionary to figure out what it's saying. All things means all things. There's nothing that's not under the feet of our Lord Jesus. There's nothing He's not in control of. There's nothing He's not in charge of. There's nothing that He does not possess. But the Scripture goes on to say in verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given, him all, had given all things into His hands, and that He was come from God and went to God. Well, when did He come from God? The Incarnation. When He took upon Himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And we'll read that verse under point two in a minute. So He came from God to be the Son of Man and the only begotten of the Father. And then the Scripture says He knew that He went to God. Well, when did he go to God? I believe it's speaking about his ascension. And the word ascension just means to go up. His ascension back to heaven after his resurrection. Jesus knew all of that. And yet, he was getting ready with that knowledge to set the best example of humble service that we have in the Bible and in all of literature. John 3.35 affirms, The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into His hands. Matthew 11.27 says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man but the Father, or neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. In other words, Jesus possessed it all, but he still gave it all. Jesus knew it all, but he still humbled himself to serve all. Let me ask you this. What has the knowledge you have gained as a Christian caused to happen in your life. Or, let me put it like this, for most of us, the more we learn, the more skeptical we become. Am I right? The more we know, the more prideful we become. The more we know, if that's not a picture of the world we live in today, I don't know what is. And we're going to see that develop in point number two. So number one is what Jesus knew. But let's progress through this uh, chapter and look at number two, what Jesus did. What Jesus did. 
And I'm just giving you this the way the Lord gave it to me. Number one, we find right here in verse number one, He loved. Now I'm not talking about what Jesus did in His whole ministry. I'm talking about right here in these verses, in this context. Verse one says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, in other words, He knew it was happening now. It was begin. Things were set in motion now. He was fixing to give the the sop or the bread to Judas. He would tell Judas, hey, what thou doest, do quickly. And Judas would go out and make his plans. The next night he would would literally betray him in the garden and they would capture him and his, his, his mock trial would start. So that's why it says here that Jesus knew his hour had come. It was the start in motion to everything that had to do with his death, burial, and resurrection. Everybody understand that? Say amen. Amen. So verse 1 goes on to say, Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. He loved them unto the end. That's significant because this was at this point, the disciples was a pretty ragtag bunch. As a matter of fact, at this same sitting, these disciples got into an argument with one another about who was the greatest. Could you imagine being in the presence of God Himself in the flesh? And asking all your buddies, hey, which one of us you think is the best? That'd be like me and Hunter and some of these other boys and men that are preachers sitting around the dinner table with Pastor Malcolm and us leaving him out of the conversation and just saying one to another, hey, which one of us you think is the best preacher around here? (laughs) William... Could you see preacher just? That's what he does. He's just, oh. I got to imagine at some point, even if Jesus didn't over, overhear them, he knew what they was thinking. And he had to think to himself, boys, boys, boys. You talking about who's the greatest. I guess I need to give you an example here. I need to show you something about the greatest. So Jesus loved. Must have been hard to love them at some point. After all, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray Him. Jesus knew that Peter was fixing to deny Him. Jesus knew their argument about who's the best around here. And Jesus knew, matter of fact, if you study your Bible closely, Jesus knew that all the disciples would forsake Him at one point while He was on the cross. And knowing all that, what did He do? He kept on loving them. He kept on loving them. He loved them unto the end. What is the end? I believe it's the end of His earthly life. Of course, we know He kept loving them when He uh, uh, was resurrected too. But there's no doubt, until He took His last breath on the cross, He loved these disciples. 
Well, how do we know that? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us what love looks like. It says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Charity is like souped up love, All right, It says, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. That's interesting. Because Jesus never failed. Does the Bible not say that God is love? Why did Jesus never quit loving them? Because He was love and love never fails. Here's the little nugget. Jesus was getting ready to serve His disciples by washing their feet. He was going to provide one of the greatest examples of humility ever. How could he do that knowing what he knew about them? He loved them. Doesn't the Bible say that love covereth a multitude of sins? He knew them, but he loved them. He knew their faults, but He loved them. He knew their failures, but He loved them. He knew what they were thinking, but He loved them. He knew what they needed, and He loved them. He knew they would desert Him, but He loved them to the end. And i gotta, I got to stop for just a minute and testify. He knew me, but He loved me. He knew what I really believed in my heart. Before I got saved, but He loved me anyway. He knew what I did. He knew where I went. He knew what I was all about. And it wasn't about God. It wasn't about church. It wasn't about the Bible. He knew all of that, and He still loved me, Brother Reese. For God commendeth His love toward us. Thank you, Lord. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's nothing we can do to get God to love us. We can't start nothing and we can't stop nothing. We can't become good enough and we thank God we can't be bad enough. For God so loved the world. He just loves us. How could He wash the nasty feet of them nasty men? He loved them. And here it is. How can we wash the nasty feet of the people in this nasty world? we got to love them. Let me give you a surefire recipe for disappointment, discouragement, and, and disillusionment. Go out in the world and try to serve people, be the hands of Jesus, whatever you want to call it. And do it without loving them. I'll give you a week or two. If you're an extra good person, maybe a month. But it won't last long. 
Look, I've been ministering to, to people who are homeless and unsheltered and drug addicts and alcoholics for my entire ministry. There's never been a time except a few months in Bible college when that's not what God assigned me to do. And I want you to know, I didn't pick it. I didn't choose it. I didn't want it. I didn't nothing. God just kind of said, okay, you here. I wasn't growing up in the city. I, I didn't uh, do, I never did drugs. I don't know what it's like, all that stuff. I have no clue why God would assign me for that and not somebody more qualified. But I do know he called me and I guess that's enough. And here's something I've noticed about Christians that get involved in that in my 25 years of doing it. Here's what I've noticed. Nine out of 10 people that get excited about going and serving the least of these. Within a month or three, they get mad. They get their feelings hurt. They get upset. They become bitter with it all. And they say things like, Psh, no, I ain't going to be treated that way. Psh, he needs to get a job. I ain't, I ain't, I ain't spending my hard-earned gas money no more to go down there. I promise you nine out of 10. It might be 9.5 people out of 10 people. And I'm just, I don't need no Barnes and Nobles or who's the statistics people? Uh, that's the booksellers. Uh, who's the statistics? Whoever. I don't need none of them to give me no statistics because April Sharp and I have lived it and we've watched Christian after Christian after Christian just psh, Walk away and say, not me. Why is that? Because they tried to go serve unlovable people without loving the unlovable people. You say, well, how do you love somebody that's unlovable? You can't do it with your own love. It has to be the love of God working through us. Through us. So before he served, he loved. And before we can serve with a pure heart, we have to love. Step one, let God break your heart. I don't have any idea why God broke my heart for homeless people, but he did. Matter of fact, I've tried to get over it. You can ask April. This is a Thompson Chain reference Bible, a good Bible. This is my second one. And you can ask her. If I'm lying, I'm dying right here. I came home one day from the mission where we worked in Augusta, and she was on the back porch, and I took my Bible that was just like this and threw it as far as I could across the yard and said, I'm done. She went and picked up my Bible and all my pages and all my sermons, and she said, Ah, oh, you're not done. Come let me make you some coffee. I was done for about five good minutes, plus the ride home, 20 minutes. But there's something about when the love of God swells up in your heart, and when God has broken your heart for a group of people, there's just, it's supernatural. I know I can't do what I do in my own power because I've quit when I tried to do it in my own strength and power. And I don't care if you're opening a door, working in the nursery, working in TSM. I don't care if you're working at 411 or, or the sound booth or, or, or singing in the choir. Praise God, I hope we get it back soon. It don't matter what you do. 
Everything we do for God has people involved. And people will aggravate the fool out of you if you don't love them. And even then, sometimes it takes extra grace. Say amen. So what Jesus did, he loved. Then number two, he laid aside his garments and he put on a towel. When it says he laid aside his garments, it don't mean he took his clothes off and got naked, okay? It's probably talking about the outer garment or the outer robe that was customary in that day. So he, it'd be like us maybe taking off our jacket or something so we can move better. So he took off his garments, laid those aside, the Bible says, and he took a towel, which was probably a linen cloth, And he he girded himself with it. He put it on himself. And before I go any further, I want to mention this. The scripture says, let me get back to the the verse. Let's see, it's verse 4. He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments. This was not the first time he had done something like this. To my knowledge, he didn't wash feet before this. But you think about laying aside his garments. And listen to this verse, Philippians 2, 5-8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians 8 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That ye, through his poverty, might be rich. Why could he lay aside his garment and put on the towel and serve by washing their feet? Because he had already in heaven laid aside his garments of deity and was born through the virgin's womb And put on the towel of humanity. He had already done it. It was in his DNA to lay aside a garment and put on a towel. I wonder what's in our DNA. Are we walking close enough with God to where it's just part of our daily activity to help someone? To be good to someone? Let me ask you this question. Have you laid anything aside lately? Have you laid aside a little time and given it to someone else? Have you laid aside your dignity and spent time with someone that was broken or poor? Have we laid aside who we think we are in this society High and mighty and love someone that nobody else is loving on. He laid aside his garments. And then the third thing that he did is he picked up a basin, 
a bowl and filled it with water and he washed the disciples' feet. You see, what Jesus knew helped determine what Jesus did. The disciples must have been shocked when they saw their master rise from supper, lay aside his garments, wrap a towel around his waist, take a basin of water and wash their feet. Jewish servants did not wash their master's feet, uh, feet, though Gentile slaves might do it. It was a menial task, one writer said, and yet Jesus did it as a mark of, uh, as a special mark of affection. A host might wash a guest's feet, but it was not standard operating procedure in most homes in that day. The point here is, this was out of place for him to do that. It was not commonplace. Kind of like, Hunter, would you get my phone from Mama and bring it to me? Kind of like, it was out of place. Kind of like, it's out of place to go love someone that really needs loving. Why is it out of place? Because ain't many folks doing it. Thank you. It's, it's out of place. It's not normal to, uh, to stop and help somebody along the way. Why is it not normal? Because there ain't many folks doing it. You know, all we got to do to be a powerhouse church is love and obey God and make disciples and then go love the world. Because there ain't many doing it. What do we do mostly? I, I, I just went to my social media today and, and, and scrolled through it just a little bit and screenshotted some headlines. This is what we do. These are, these are headlines from the last day or two. New White House Press Secretary's Most Thug Life Moments. Here's one. This is from a pastor. This is his heading before the video. This will make many people very angry. I'm going to say what every pastor should be saying. Here's one. Toughest man on earth with a humiliating secret. Here's a headline. Press sec schools rude reporter on whatever. Drops mic and walks out. I watched that one. It was actually kind of good. Uh, <laughs> here's one. Watch so-and-so enrage so-and-so with their own words. Here's one. Uh, so-and-so, I'm just saying so-and-so because I'm not trying to be political at all. So-and-so drops bomb on so-and-so. Here's one. <laughs> President Trump slaps Senator so-and-so. Whether you agree with any of these things or not, do you see the, 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 uh, the tone? In the world we live in, it's cool to destroy people. It's cool to dismantle what someone's built up. It's the thing to do to write a headline 
that gets people to be like, ooh, how'd they get him? How'd they fail? Ooh, we got... That's our world. And here's the thing. It's crept, that spirit has crept in to the house of God. You remember what preacher preached on a couple Wednesdays ago? When, he's, when he was in, in, in Timothy? That thou mayest know how to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the, uh, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Why did, why did Paul write that to Timothy, saying that I'm writing these things so you know how to behave yourself in the house of God? Because he knew a time was coming, well, it was then too, but also now, when people ain't behaving themselves in the house of God. So you take all those headlines I just read, and I've got ten more. You take all them and compare them to this. It ain't even close. Jesus humbly served. So what Jesus knew, what Jesus did, let me end with what Jesus said. Number three, what Jesus said. I like this. I heard this on the, or read this or listened to it on one of the commentaries I was reading. And the pastor said, before he taught them, he touched them. He gave them the example before He gave them the expectation. So you know this, whatever Jesus says to us, He's already done it. Amen? He's not asking us to do something He didn't do. What did Jesus say? Well, look at what He said to Peter. He said something to Peter, then He said something to all the disciples. So to Peter, He said three things. Verse 7, Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. It's the first thing he said. Then in verse 80, it says, Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Then the third thing he said to Peter was in verse 10. Jesus saith unto him, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit or every where. And ye are clean, but not all. That's what he said to Peter. You see, as Peter watched the Lord wash his friend's feet, he became more and more disturbed and could not understand what he was doing. As you read the life of Christ in the Gospels, you cannot help but notice how Peter often spoke impulsively out of ignorance and had to be corrected by Jesus. He was always doing that. And you've heard that before. Here's, here's three examples. Peter opposed Jesus going to the cross in Matthew 16. He tried to manage the Lord's affairs at, at Mount Transfiguration like preacher preached on Sunday. And he expressed the faith of the disciples without realizing that one of them was a traitor. He just got it wrong a lot of times. We can learn an important lesson from Peter. Don't question the Lord's will or work. And don't try to change it. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not toward thine own understanding. In 
all thy ways. Acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. You see, Jesus was explaining to Peter that in order to have daily fellowship with him, he needed to be cleansed from the daily defilement of living in a dirty world. Now let me explain that. When someone gets saved, the Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, 13. That's a promise from God. When someone gets saved, they get saved. Their sins are forgiven, past, present, future. When God looks at that person, He sees the blood of Jesus Christ. They're saved. They're not lost again when they sin. They're saved. But Jesus says, as you walk in this world, your feet are going to get dirty. Not your physical feet, but, 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 but you're, you're, you're going to be defiled with daily things that trip you up and you fall. And you need cleansing from that. That is, you need to confess your sins. Uh, uh, 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not about talking about getting saved over again. That's talking about having a daily walk with God. When I got saved, I thought this. I thought, whew, praise God, that's over. <laughs> Man, God will leave me alone. I can leave Him alone. We've made our peace. Whew. I literally felt like, shoo. Got him off my back. I had no idea that God wanted to have a daily relationship with me. That he wanted to be my best friend. I had no idea. And then I began to learn that as I walk through this world and stumble and fall into sin, I need to come to the Lord, not once at night or once in the morning, but throughout the day. I needed to come to the Lord and acknowledge those sins. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry. Please cleanse me. Please forgive me. And so that's what he's telling Peter here. So he has something to say to Peter. And then lastly, he has something to say to the disciples. And we'll end it with this. He says to the disciples about three things too. He says uh, in verse 12, no, after he washed their feet, put the basin back up, put his garment back on. Then he looked at him and he says, do you know what I've just done? Know you what I've done to you? In other words, he's saying, y'all getting this yet? No, do you know what I've done to you? Look in verse 12. He says, uh, know, you not, know you what I've done to you? Then 13 he says, Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. Go ahead and put that verse on, on these folks that say Jesus never claimed to be God. You see capital L right there? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. If that's not claiming to be deity and claiming to be God, I don't know what is. And then he says to him, the servant is not greater than his Lord. So Jesus is saying, if I'm your Lord and Master and, and, and I've done this unto you, you need to wash each other's feet. In other words, you need to forgive each other and you need to serve each other. Every Sunday, there's people on that side of churches and on that side of churches, and they will not wash each other's feet. In other words, they will not forgive the things that they have against each other. And, but Jesus said, if I'm your Lord and Master, and I've done this to you, you have an obligation to treat one another in humility the same way. Then he said this, 
The servant is not greater than his Lord. I first read that and I thought, well, here, here it is. If the master becomes a the servant or slave is not greater than his master. So if their master becomes a slave, here it is. Where does that put the slave? This is the awesome news. On the same level as his master. Did you get that? Just keep that and go home and read it later on tonight. And you'll chuckle when you get it. By becoming a servant, our Lord did not push us down. He lifted us up. He dignified sacrifice and service. You get me? He did, the Greeks uh, did not approve of manual labor. The, the Greeks did not agree with humbling yourselves. It's Jesus that dignified that and made that awesome. When we serve, we're like Jesus. When we humble ourselves, we're like Jesus. And by the way, why did all the humiliation that was heaped on Jesus when he was on the cross, remember how they said this? They said he saved others himself. He cannot save. They tried to humiliate him. Did it work? Why? Because he'd already humbled himself Hard to humiliate someone that's willingly humiliated themselves for the Father. You know what's wrong with most of us? We've not humiliated ourselves. We've not humbled ourselves. And so when someone humiliates us, we get real offended, don't we? And Jesus is saying, just like I humbled myself, save yourself a lot of grief, and humble yourself too. And then he says in verse 17, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. It's not enough to know it. We've all heard this tonight, so you leave here, you know it. But we've got to do it. In, this, in these 17 verses, Jesus was... Humble with the Father. He was, let me read it. I, my mind ain't half as sharp as preachers. Where does it say that? Is it on here? The last thing? Oh, yeah. He, he showed humbleness with the Father, holiness with Peter, and happiness with the disciples. If we'll keep it in that order, we can be happy as we serve. Or humbly we can serve. Humble, holiness, and then comes happiness. Amen.